0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, February 1st, 2022. I am John Hortz, the editor of Commentary. With me as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So uh, wouldn't it be the biggest news in the world uh, if uh, uh, the COVID surge that has uh, preoccupied America for the past two months, and uh, and uh, allowed for the continuation of strictures or the reimposition of strictures in some places. That 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 um, uh, surge is over. Uh, New York, uh, which is one of the uh, key places where the surge is, uh, cases are down ninety five percent. If you look at the Omicron chart, you will see that um, you know it 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 will be gone. By next week, pretty much, according to the measures, not only in New York, but in most places in the United States. Shouldn't that be the top story in the media right now?
1: Well, the top story is in case rates unless case rates are going up. When case rates are going down, that's not the top story. The top story are hospitalizations and deaths, which they should be. But things are different now in ways that we've discussed previously. Make things very complicated as far as how we code these deaths. Right.
0: Now, I don't, I don't want that's yeah. the
1: press's focus It's no longer on case rates. I think. I
0: think the point that I, the thing that I'm trying to make, the point I'm trying to make here is that um, uh, there is a there is a mania abroad in the land to continue to have the country focused on. Covid and the Covid response as a socially disruptive fact of life, rather than as the thing that we are now combating. So I'll give you an example of this. Pfizer uh, believes that the FDA is about to approve the use of its vaccine for children under the age of five sometime by the end of this week. A, tri- no, a two do- dose try, know two dose vaccination. Omicron is going away. What are we going to talk about for the next two weeks? We're going to talk about vaccine resistance among parents with children five and younger. We're not going to be talking about the fact that the questionable idea that, you know, kids under five who really don't get it at all need to be universally vaccinated against against um, against the against COVID which is an interesting question, an interesting debating question. But that there are a lot of people who don't want to do it. That this is now going to reignite a new fight between the that va- you know, between those who are, you know, those for whom the, the vaccine means everything and those who are gonna say, well, you know, kids don't get it. I would prefer my kid doesn't get this this shot. Will schools de- will will preschools demand it? You know, will daycares demand it? Uh, Will you will they be allowed to force it? You know, all of that stuff. Um, And we're going to have that fight while
1: COVID is going away. Well, respectfully, John, I I disagree with your premise that there's a contingent here that you're talking about for whom the vaccine means everything. Your quote, the vaccine means nothing for these people. They don't (laughs) perceive it. They don't perceive it to be effective at all. In preventing bad outcomes, and otherwise they wouldn't care whether children were vaccinated or not, because the premise they state, their stated premise, is that children have to be universally vaccinated in order for them to not get it, and if they don't get it, not transmit it. To me, I'm the one at, at risk here, not them. Me,
0: right? Okay, I agree. That I agree. Uh, uh, what I meant was that that um, being on the side of the vaccine or not on the side of the vaccine is pretty much the American fault line right now. And of course the fault line is wildly tipped in favor of the vaccine. I mean, what do we know? 83% of everybody who is eligible for vaccination has had at least one shot. I think isn't that what the New York Times number is? I think it's 83%. So that means that basically the the vaccine has won and that there's a very vocal minority of people who will not take the vet, who will not take it who are being an, uh, fr- from their population are the people who have gotten really seriously sick from omicron in hospital i mean 99% of the cases in hospitals are of people uh, with omicron or of the unvaccinated
2: um, um the yeah. the coming discussion and i agree through that it will, it will be preoccupied with uh Parents who are holdouts is going to be particularly heated because the conversation is not going to be tipped so dramatically in favor of the pro-vaccine. Because we're now talking about if the, if the Pfizer uh, uh, the new the new vaccine is approved, kids in some cases as young as six months. There's going to be a lot of parents who are just not going to go in for that.
3: Well, and because the risk is very the risk an unvaccinated child is still at lower risk than a vaccinated adult of serious complications from COVID. And that's a no, That's a fact. So I think not, uh, there are plenty of people, I think we're missing a, a certain part of the population here. People who are, who are supportive of vaccination are vaccinated themselves, but are not super happy with mandates, are not super happy with the idea that the rules that apply to adults should apply to very, very young children who are at much, much lower risk. I think there are a lot of parents who are themselves vaccinated, have their older kids vaccinated, who are holding a baby going, I know the risk and talk to their pediatricians and the pediatricians tell them the risk of COVID and they might decide that's not something they need or want to do. So, and that's a legitimate debate to have, but that debate will get squashed under the very partisan and polarizing way we've been talking about vaccines for the last year.
0: Okay, so the numbers are that 75% of people in the United States have received at least one dose. That includes children under the age of five since they are among the people in the United States. Uh, I believe they make up about 25 million. I think it's it's like 5 million per age you know per annual age person. Um, so 75 percent have received it. and the breakdown is interesting. 18 to 64 fully vaccinated, 71 uh, percent, 65 and up 88 percent, 12 to 17, 56 percent, 5 to 11, 22 percent. So people are making this choice to be vaccinated and not to vaccinate their children already because of the five to eleven number. That number you can figure is going to be around the same, you know, for younger, maybe a little stronger. Uh, I would do it. uh, You know, my kids are fully vaccinated. My 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 youngest is eleven. I would do it if my kid was under five. But you know, I I also I, I would. You know, I don't really think they're in danger from getting mumps either, um, and I and I've done that. You know, I have no question about that. I, I that said, uh, the question is: Will the lack of will that number staying around twenty five percent of people is that going to be the excuse that is given to keep kids in masks while ever increasing numbers of Americans. Um, are enraged at the fact that their kids are being forced to wear masks. Because I think basically that's its use, its use, its utility. The utility of the getting the uh, under fives, uh, approving the under five vaccination to the to the maniacs who are now basically in charge of the asylum is that they will now be able to have a target by which they can say everybody can take their mask off.
3: Well, they won't do that. And we know this because, look, I have teenagers in high school. We reached a targeted vaccination rate among high school students with the promise of mask removal, and they are all still in their mask. They will not remove the mask because the masks are the talismanic thing right. that the that the people who are completely hypochondriacal about this will continue to grasp. So I the thing about the younger children, though, I have to say, like, there are different Challenges for parents to navigate. There's a lot of information out there. If you have young men, for example, as I do, I'm raising young men. There are there are uh, there's a myocarditis risk, which is not zero, and the weighing that against whether you know for booster shot choices, for example, there are a lot of questions, and one should go to one's doctor or pediatrician talk to the your doctor about those. Um, I am not an MD, but I do think that that the fact that people don't feel like they can even have these debates without being branded anti-vax, that's the problem right now. And schools can't parents can't go to their schools individually and say, you know what, the masking's really gotta end. Yeah, my kid's not vax, but he's four and you know, he's healthy and no one in our household has is immunocompromised. And it's it we know from other studies, and particularly in Europe, that it doesn't, these masks don't really work for the kids anyway. They're gonna double down on masks, they're gonna try to get them. My school's trying to get kids into the N95 masks now. And we know from Omicron, it doesn't prevent the transmission. It didn't work.
0: It doesn't work against Omicron. And Omicron is going to be gone. And the case rate number, which Noah, as you said, like that case rate number is going to be vanishingly small unless there is a new variant and and a different kind of outbreak. And that could be again next week. That's the second week in February. How are they going to keep the masks? What by what logic are they going to keep the masks on? And this is what I say, they're going to talk about the vaccinations. That is the logic. That is that that is the logic. Remember, like little little kids under five are mostly wearing cloth masks because the other ones are too uncomfortable and it's hard to breathe through them.
1: Okay. So, so they're already this... wearing ineffectual masks. Right. And and the idea that you can keep. And ninety fives on children under the age of 10 betrays the lack of experience you have with children under the age of 10 um, or any but, human being. Any I, faith, can, ba- really, I can barely the human one. nature. Yeah, um, we got this poll yesterday from the from Monmouth University, which is kind of a blockbuster top line number, which is roughly seven in 10 Americans agree with the statement that uh, we have to move on with our lives, that this is endemic. It's going to be here forever. We got to move on. Um you dig down into that poll a little bit and it's not sure exactly what people mean by forever because you still or live with it because you still have a majority just over 50%. I think it was 53 or something like that who support mitigation measures, masking measures, social distancing measures, what have you. Now that has been declining precipitously over the course of the three consecutive polls where they've taken this September, December, and now. And the trends are clear. More people saying live with it, less people saying mitigation measures, sure. Um, but that's what they're going to be able to cling to to say. Well, when people say we need to move on, they mean stop talking about it, but endorse these you know, common sense protocols that keep everybody safe and keep institutions open. That's what they'll be able to tell themselves, right up to the uh, the moment that everybody votes in November, at which point the verdict will be relatively clear.
0: I, you know, they can tell themselves so, uh, the blockbuster number is the number that is to say. Well, what's interesting is that uh, Democrats remain mild do do not Oh, want that to number on. among
1: Democrats the move yeah. on number about Democrats was 47 percent right plurality 51 percent yeah. don't want to move on but that's right. as narrow as you get
0: right but the independent number is three quarters and the Republican number is 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 nine tenths so yes there's a there's a there's a partisan breakdown but it is not it is this is this is if you're looking at this as a politician and I'm not saying that public health officials Or whatever, you know, people who are enthralled to the teachers unions are looking at it solely on the basis of what is it that their constituents are saying. It is time to head for the exits here. I mean, it is really time, not only is it time to head for the exits, it is time to use this issue as a wedge against, to, to separate yourself from what is going on. You need to separate yourself. You need to get on record sort of like, well, you know, I voted for, I voted against the 87 billion before I voted for it. You want to, you want to muddy your record on how much you are affiliated with these ideas and precepts. And you're getting all the information and data that you need to do so to say, you don't have to do the general, we need Jared Polis thing. We need to learn how to live with it. You can say evidence is now strong that masking should end. There's no there's no there's no uh, rise in cases. Uh, It's on people need to be able to go on and see children need to be able to learn better. Blah, 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 blah.
3: But that's where the optics, I think, are really going to harm Democrats. And maybe not if this continues, not just to 2022, but further on. So uh, there have been a lot of images, for example, in California, which has very strict masking mandates for very young ch- for kids in schools. You know, they you see all these images of kids, even outdoors, having to wear masks at recess, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have the, the governor of the state in a very crowded sports venue recently hanging out with a over 60 year old man who's immunocompromised, uh, a famous athlete, and no mask. No one has a mask on anywhere. And then he lies about the fact, even though there's these things. But it, this is happening around even in places like in Colorado. You mentioned Polis. So Denver's announced that you don't have to wear masks or show proof of vaccination to enter businesses, right? This is in Denver, the city. But they're still going to continue a mask requirement for schools. Like, what is the logic of that? Those are the least risk, the, the least at risk people are being forced into the most draconian uh, mitigation measures.
0: So I think we, we do know what that is and it's not a it's not conspiratorial to think it often policies are supported as not just talismanic about you know like masking shows that you care about covid or you know we need to be tough on covid and people who don't think that are bad it has now become a sign of the political power particularly of teachers unions and school administrators and things like that That is to say, um, you know, six or 7% of the US workforce uh, is unionized in the private sector. 34% of public sector workers are unionized. That's the key number you need to understand. There is no constituency for COVID hawkishness among the unionized in general in the United States. But if you are a public sector union leader and Part of your power involves um, not only being able to rally people to the polls and to do voter organizing to all of that stuff, but um, you need public officials to be scared of you. You need them to be a little scared of you. They're, to always um, want to have you 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 have their back so that you won't you won't either organize against them or or be the sort of person they say doesn't care about their issues and that kind of thing. That's where this is gone. This this is now that for teachers unions, which are the largest public sector union in the United States. It's self-defeating. It's monumentally stupid. They are going down a path toward their own self-destruction in a generation by doing this. But this is the path that they have chosen, and they don't know how to get off it. But if you are a politician in the United States, you better get off it. And you can get off it without becoming an anti-vaxxer. Well, because the facts and the statistics and everything are on your side and n- almost nothing is on the side of the other side except the raw political power of a cohort of people who have now decided that this deranged policy is the is the visual expression and manifestation of their authority over public officials in the United States.
2: Well, Noah, you wrote a piece yesterday about Governor Phil Murphy from New Jersey, um, who is, sort of striking out on this on this kind of path uh, that 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 John's talking about. You know, I mean, he's talking plainly about moving on. Yeah, very tentatively. And Governor Murphy has
1: the advantage of being the only Democratic governor in this country who experienced a political backlash against this and very narrowly survived. So he has the fear of God in him and he has expressed it um, when the Omicron wave hit right after Thanksgiving. There was a big push in the state to re-implement a whole lot of the 2020 status quo, uh, restrictions on indoor uh, uh, capacity limits and restoring mask mandates and even partial lockdowns. And it was sufficient to convince Governor Kathy Hochul to uh, re-implement a mask mandate. And, And New Jersey has a tendency to be sucked into the event horizon of New York whenever they do anything. So to buck that trend, which he did, Um, while saying, listen, we're going to have to live with this, which he did, uh, was an act of courage, uh, an act of uh, abandoning constituencies to whom you are beholden and who demonstrate a significant amount of tangible power over uh, what you can and can't do in Trenton. Um, And he was on Meet the Press yesterday demonstrating more laudable courage by endorsing, without caveat, uh, the view of Arkansas Governor Issa Hutchinson that, yeah, we have to treat this like it's endemic. This is going to be a feature of modern life forever. So, I mean, it's not as though New Jersey's is this, uh, you know, it's, it's north, the northern version of Florida. We have plenty of restrictions in this state, many of which are onerous and burdensome and unjustified by any of the science. But at least we're making a rhetorical shift in a direction that really antagonizes this perpetual pandemic contingent. And he's surviving it. So there is a roadmap there. Look, what? what there
0: are ways that you can tell why what Murphy is doing is sensible, even though he's not going to face the voters, you know, for another four years. I don't know. Is, is that
1: ever is he no, term term limits, yeah. Okay.
0: Well, he might want to run for Senate, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, so there there are visible there are visible manifestations of the fact that the COVID stuff is turning on Democrats and they know it, which is to stay. That in campaign materials for 2022 races that uh, Democrats are running, and obviously it's early, there aren't many television commercials and stuff like that, they are staying away from COVID. They don't want to talk about COVID, they're staying away from COVID. 2020, all they wanted to do was talk about COVID, even in 2021 in specials and all that, they wanted to talk about COVID, they don't want to talk about COVID. Republicans are incredibly eager to talk about COVID. Because it is a perfect, very broad, very, um, very broad target that brings in an enormous coalition of people from lunatic anti-vaxxers to totally sensible, moderate liberals who cannot bear what is going on any longer and read the new and know we have to get on with our lives and all of that. And so if you say, I'm not with this whole thing and the way they're handling it and it's top-down government at its worst... And I'm not there for that. I'm there for you to represent you and make sure that you are free from government's heavy hand. Man, and that it, is a fantastic and it very, very broad. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Very fascinatingly, it it overlaps with the anti radical, anti-revolutionary sentiment too, that brings people because because it all sort of comes together in schools. And in 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 your rights as a parent in schools, so it so it it, it it's an incredible vehicle, um, sort of ideologically too, to sort of you know make inroads into the not particularly partisan public's right. um, concerns about what's what is going on in schools altogether.
0: So if you look at it as though you are you know planting, you know that your your campaign is something that you're planting. So this is. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm bad at, I'm, I, I don't really understand <laughs> gardening or planting, but like, this is the soil that you're going to start with. The soil you're going to start with is uh, government's gone too far or uh, things have gone too far in America. There's too much inflation. There's too much crime. There's too much regulation. There's too much, uh, you know, heavy hand on COVID and all that. And and so if you even start with the COVID thing, like I'm breaking from you know, I, I I am not with this weird uh, concept that government has the right to tell you how many customers you can have in your store, even if that hasn't happened for a couple of years. How many customers you can have in your store? How they behave while they're in your store? How you're supposed to behave when you are interacting with them, and all of that. And then all of these ancillary things can come off it. I'm not with government. Uh, you know, imposing critical race theory. I'm not with government uh, spending too much money and then causing, you know, and, 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 and that way, uh, you know, continuing inflation. I'm not with government regulations that have slowed down the supply chain. I'm not with this, I'm not with that. Depending on who you are in 435 house districts in the United States, you can emphasize one or the other or another of these. As long as you start from this basis, things have gone too far. That's not an ideological message. That's a practical, I, we keep talking about this, that, that it's the what am I crazy camp that is going to do in Democrats. They have time, a lot of them, or individually they have time to recover. Ten months is a long, nine months until election is a long time. They have, they have more than enough time to recover, to flip the script, and to change the balance of how they talk about this. They really do but they have to talk in commonsensical ways and talking about how we're not really there yet. We're not maybe next month, you know, Oh, I don't know. You know, like that, like they are, they have, you know, as we keep, they've lost the thread and they, and they've, they've lost their connection
2: uh, to the ordinary concerns of ordinary people. I haven't, Anthony, I'm sorry. Continue. Well, my (laughs) question is kind of an aside about this whole issue. What John was saying at the top that, we're a week or two away from the the Omicron wave, you know, sort of dying off altogether. Um, have any of these free tests been delivered? Uh, I heard I heard they have.
3: I ordered well, some. I haven't seen. I, them. I, I ordered haven't got them, but I, I, heard,
0: I saw on Twitter a couple of people saying they got
3: theirs. OK, mm.
1: it was a question. <laughs> right. Well, that
3: was
0: Fine. just
1: that wasn't a policy preference. That was just designed to get Joe Biden out of a really bad news cycle. Right. So it doesn't matter when you get them. He got out of his bad news cycle. That was the whole point of that. Um, or, or did he? Um, anyway, well, you were going yeah, to say um, Anthony Fauci he was on a podcast with uh, Michael Barbaro of the New York Times. And most it was a f- fascinating interview, a very interesting interview, because it, uh, Barbaro brought up things that you are not supposed to say in polite company. Um, things like I know people. I'm not going to name names, but I know people ch- who have children. Who, are, who refuse, to, I've said this on this podcast, who, who will not get them tested if they've been exposed for fear that they might trigger COVID protocols when they aren't presenting any signs, when they aren't presenting any symptoms, when it doesn't seem like they've gotten anything. And if they were to trigger anything, it would keep them out of school for a week and a half and it would close down their classroom. The incentives to test make no sense. To which Anthony Fauci replied, that's unfortunate. That's a poor public health practice. And that's pretty much it. No, It's a poor public
0: health practice on the part of the individuals who are refusing, or it's a poor health
1: practice that things have gotten to this. It's reckless and irresponsible on Ah, their part. Okay. Um, And yet that is human nature with which he refuses to contend.
0: Hey, remember Um, when we couldn't even get a test? That's the, that's of course the incredible joke here is that, you know, uh, I remember back in March, April, uh, May of of 2020, something happened in my family. Somebody was, somebody was feeling very sick. So, you know, you could not get a COVID test.
1: I mean, there's just uh, you know the bas- only
0: way that they knew that anybody had COVID and not, that they they were reserving COVID tests in case hospitals were overrun. Now, now apparently any COVID, if you lick if you if you lick <laughs> a piece
1: of paper and two lines come up, that's fine. But even that's an antiquated. It's a, that's a conversation that the the news cycle has passed us by. Right. If you're to judge by this interview, which was ex- all exclusively about. The need to move on, and how to drag a particular sort of person who doesn't want to move on, kicking and screaming, into a more psychologically healthy relationship with a functional society. It was all about well, we get when we get back to normal. Quote: We'll see a return, a gradual return to normal, even though normal will not be exactly the way it was before all of this. And I don't see we will have indefinite masking requirements. Maybe in a couple of months. Maybe longer than a couple of months. I mean, he was gesturing in the direction of where this conversation is headed while being very frustrated by it, clearly pained by it, but nevertheless forced to acknowledge it by virtue of this interview. I I found it interesting.
0: Don't you think that people are going to be hoping for a new variant? See, I, I think that the logic here is that there better be a new variant and soon. Otherwise, We're just not going to be able to resist all of this pressure Um, that, that, you know, in some, you know, or not that anyone would say that out loud, but that this is kind of like if you're at some CDC meeting to discuss these things, it's like, Hey, Phil, what's going on in the variant front? You know, what's the, what's the wastewater telling us? That's my favorite new thing is the wastewater. Uh-oh, there's stuff in the wastewater. I was about to say the wrong word there because there, of course, is that stuff in the wastewater. But um, the wastewater, that's really the key to now understanding everything. Anyway, um, I, I i don't mean, I feel like, you know, we, we do this over and over and over again, but I do, but everything is changing very fast and the uh, determination to continue with the idea that the, that the, uh, the unvirtuous monsters in this country are are exclusively, um, you know, unvaccinated people who are, who are going to kill us when in fact all unvaccinated people are doing is wildly raising the risk to themselves that they will be killed. And yeah, I'm sorry, people do have, I hate to put it this way. People do have that right, you know, You're supposed to wear a seatbelt, but you don't. You're supposed to wear a helmet when you ride a motorcycle, but you don't. You probably shouldn't smoke, but 25% of the country smokes. You You probably shouldn't drink alcohol to excess, but 10% of the country drinks alcohol to excess. There's a lot of personal behaviors people engage in that are not conducive to their better health. And we do not, and though we may have passive policies like seatbelt laws
2: that attempt to help them, we don't have active policies. John, on the point about the new variant, about the on the lookout for a new variant, I think the really difficult thing is going to be if there is a new variant and it's bad, we still have to move on. And that fight is going to make th- this one look like nothing because well, I, the policies still don't work. Children are will still be harmed. Right. And all, all the issues remain the same. Well, let's let, let's let get let's let's game that out a little bit. So let's say there's a new variant
0: and it's dangerous. It's like Omicron, but it's more dangerous. It's like Delta. Uh, but it has Omicron's features, which we'll is say it's like Delta, but it evades. You know, it works like the worst and more scenario. pathogenic. Right, so it's the worst case scenario that you sort of get alpha back and it both evades the, it evades the uh, ability of the vaccine to prevent its transmission. And, and it's uh, uniquely contagious. This is the problem. It's like it's a boy who cried wolf situation, which is let's say something happens where in fact what we really need are very powerful mitigation measures for a temporary period. They are not imposable again. That's why they have to be used so with you know they have to be used with such um, care, and why they need to be lifted immediately and all of that. Because in order to build trust, you have to make clear to people that you're not just doing it as a default. You do it in response to a genuine crisis, and then people are actually scared and believe that what they need to do is to mitigate in the way that authorities are going to tell them to mitigate. So, not, Abe, you're right that we're going to need to move on. But let's say we were in a situation in which we didn't need to move on. We actually had to behave the way we did in March of 2020. We're not going to.
2: America is not going to behave like that. But that's, that's what I'm saying. Right. It's, it's, it needs to move on. It's, it's, it is going to. I mean, there's going to be a fight
0: but the right i'm just saying that it's not that we, it's not that we still need to move on it's that we will, we are moving on we will move on and if something calamitous happens it will be the fault the moral responsibility of people who who lost the trust of ordinary people uh, you know the the you know the the chicken little trust of ordinary people so if the sky starts falling people are going to say I don't believe you that the sky is falling. You have just told me one too many times that the sky was falling. And then I got Omicron and it was like a cold and I'm not going to get my kid tested because I know that it's not harmful to him. And, and he, and I'm not going to ruin my life and his class's life. And then what, then, as I say, if you game it out to the worst possible scenario, Anthony Fauci will be responsible for the fact that Americans will not mitigate again to, in any great numbers. I mean, they will in some, you know, they will in my neighborhood, but they're not Noah's neighborhood, not that you know, and they, and I don't know where they're going to, I mean, I, and maybe in my neighborhood, half the people are, aren't, aren't going to him and I'm hearing stories about, you know, um, class, class uh, chats, you know, sort of WhatsApp chats in, in, uh, in New York City p- private schools, uh, where if you're in the class chat for the pre-K or the nursery, very respectable, very liberal parents are already saying you can't do this anymore. Get I'm I, I'm not getting my kid vaccinated, and their masks need to come off. And that this is a majority opinion in schools. In which now there are, of course, obviously going to be people who want a mask forever among them, but they are not. That this is not the conventional opinion anymore. And if they're if that's not the conventional opinion anymore there, it's not going to be the conventional opinion anywhere. And it's obviously not the conventional opinion in LA where Gavin Newsom for the second time in his governorship is flouting his own regulations indoors. Because he was at a stadium, but he was indoors next to Magic Johnson with his mask off and then lied about it said he only took it off temporarily, as, as Christine mentioned. He didn't just take it off temporarily. There are pictures of him 20 minutes before and 20 minutes after with his mask on. You know why? Because he was at the NFL champion, He was at the NFC Championship game, and he wanted to enjoy it. And
3: he should, because he's vaccinated. Everyone there should. That's the point. It's like, yeah. The, yeah.
0: Well, that's of course then the final thing, and then we'll move on. I I you know, again, it's like no exit. All we do is talk about this. But it's, you know, it's, it's I brought this up because the very fact that the headlines in the United States, that the nightly news, the three nightly newscasts, which do get 25 million people watching every every day, by the way, isn't COVID's gone next week. That it's it's not that. It's guess what? Jonathan Carl's reporting from six months ago has now been verified by the New York Times that Trump discussed wanting to seize uh, voting machines, even though it didn't happen, and everybody who asked officials in cabinet departments to do it said, I'm not going to do it, which actually could be looked at as a sign that, in fact, the most psychotic schemes to steal the 2020 election back from Biden failed because the system worked and public officials weren't going to do what Trump wanted. Nonetheless, that's going to be the headline tonight, right? Not COVID is going away. COVID, which affects 330 330 million people, and the Trump story, which affects
1: 12 people. That is COVID going away to a certain degree, isn't it? How so? I mean, this is the, who are they talking to? Who is the audience for the story that Donald Trump wanted to do something, didn't do it, and it was really bad that he wanted to do it, but didn't do it. But the the audience. Same audience for the people who want to hear about how COVID is killing them. I'm I suppose, although society. not
0: really, they're desperately trying to retail. This is why it's interesting the story. Now, now, I'm really gone off on a tangent, but uh, you know, the New York Times did this. New reporting shows that Trump was he- more heavily involved in the effort to you know uh, get the seize voting machines. It's not a new story. They literally stole Jonathan Karl's story from his book Betrayal. With the same meeting and the same discussion, and 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 Johnny Magenty yelling at the yelling at Ken Cuccinelli at, at Homeland Security to to use powers he didn't have to seize voting machines. So why is this story coming up again? Because they are desperately trying to scare suburban women who are fleeing Democrats in droves in these polls and going back to the Republicans, they're trying to remind them why they were scared of Trump in the first place. And I don't think it's gonna work because the story is too old. It may have some effect, who knows, I don't know. But I'm just saying the story the, co- the story in the United States is that the thing that has caused the continuation of the COVID controversies and the fights and the wars and all of that and the masking and all of that is gone next week or the week after, maybe even next week, and I don't see that as the dominating news story in the United States. That that was where that was where this uh, that was where this this started. And uh, and uh, I'll just say briefly, the issue here with the New York Times story and the Jonathan Carl story and all of that, there's one reason to be frightened by the details here. If you haven't really followed it before, on the one hand, it is a story. It is a misunderstood story because it's a story about how the system held like much of the 2020 story. It is a story about how the system held. Pence wouldn't do what Trump wanted. Bill Barr wouldn't do what Trump wanted. Ken Cuccinelli wouldn't do what Trump wanted. The Defense Department wouldn't do what Trump wanted. Nobody would do what Trump wanted. Secretary of State of Georgia wouldn't do what Trump wanted. The governor of Arizona wouldn't do what Trump wanted. The people in Wisconsin wouldn't do what Trump wanted. Nobody would do what Trump wanted. What what Sidney Powell and even Rudy Giuliani, who believed in the steel and was involved in these crazy ideas, didn't want anybody to do what Trump wanted them to do, which was seize these voting machines, right? That is a story about how the norms held all we're being told is that the norms didn't hold and the norms held. There's one reason to be afraid, which is the more and more it appears that Trump was materially, I mean, we know he was seduced by these ideas or interested in these ideas. That is a 2024 and beyond story, because the question is, and that this will be a legitimate question to talk about in 2024, if he comes in and he wins because, you know, uh, Biden is senile and Kamala is an idiot and the Democrats have the record they have and he wins That's when you don't know what the vetting of the officials who are going to get hired by the executive branch in a second Trump administration, what it will be like, what they will have to guarantee and promise, how anti-institutional they will be and how committed they will be to the agenda that, you know, so seduced the Claremont people and, you know, John Eastman and Steve Balch and all these people who decided that uh, you know, our country was in such a danger that it was okay to make up cockamamie excuses why Mike Pence could decide the 2020 election on his own. That's the that's the reason to be scared. But there's n- but that is not the story that the New York Times is telling. Anybody have any thoughts on this before I go to commercial? <laughs>
1: Just that, you know, you're talking about how to articulate a morning in America story that Democrats don't have a language for anymore. They don't have the vocabulary to communicate optimism. They don't feel optimistic. Well, it's not just they don't feel optimistic.
0: They don't want to be optimistic, right? Their entire pitch is they want to scare the bejesus out of everybody, scare them into voting for them. I just don't think that works. Like, they have to be scared for real. And obviously, inflation is scary you know, crime is scary, that something happened two years ago that was bad or a year and a half ago that was bad. I don't think that's that scary. Am I am I am I being foolish here or like, you know, making excuses or something? I just I don't know. But um, I don't feel like it.
3: It'll be scary if Trump officially announces he's going to run in 2024, because then actually they'll have a a legitimate thing to look at and see as a possibility. And then the fear mongering might be made to more effect. But until then, it's it's it, they I, I, it's I do think it's one way in which the the sort of mainstream liberal media and, and the left got itself into a real pickle during the Trump years is that they fed on that fear. They pro- they profited from it liberally in terms of the media and they can't go back like that. I think no is right. They can't find a tone again that's in any way optimistic and not doomsaying because that worked for so long for them for four years. That's a long time in in uh, our media news cycles.
0: Yeah. And they raised a billion five in dark money, right? I mean, that's you know that's how they did it. That's no one's ever seen money like that in politics before. A billion five in dark money, as opposed to nine hundred million raised by Republicans, who supposedly invented dark money. So uh, it pays. It works. It's a very effective way of. Of, of doing a certain type of business that is also uniquely profitable to people in politics. I mean, this, there, there is money being thrown around here that dwarfs, you know, the sort of things that people used to say was bad about consultants. You know, that consultants took too much money from booking television commercials and things like that. And therefore they had, they had a vested interest in, in, in ginning up things that would make them money as opposed to being good for the campaign or the party or whatever. You know, this is we're we're now we are so far beyond that, you know, like the commission on a 40 million dollar, or 100 million dollar, you know, nonprofit that is doing X, Y and Z, the amount of money you can pull out of that, who God only knows, you know, that's not 10 percent of uh, of a commercial sale. Anyway, uh, let me talk to you about Ball and Branch. Uh, Look, if you dream of comfortable sheets at a price that won't keep you up all night, look to Ball and Branch. Noah does. I'm not going to make Noah say it again. He's got pewter sheets. He loves them. They fit the mattress. Uh, The fitted sheets really fit the mattress. They match his walls. They got seven different colors. I think it's seven. Let me double check here. Um, uh, Seven beautiful colors in all sizes from twin up to California King. They're organic cotton. The production is ethical. There's thoughtful attention to every detail. And um, and Bullen Branch gives you a fair play, price, plus a 30-day risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on that buttery, soft, lightweight, organic cotton in a classic sateen weave. It gets softer over time. It's not too hot. It's not too cool. These are the perfect year-round sheets for most sleepers. And they focus on quality over quantity. They're not going to throw some ridiculous thread count number at you. More isn't always better. And so... Experience the best sheets you've ever felt at bowlandbranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at checkout. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. And let's talk about our friends at Wellfront. Look, do you, do you want to make investments? Do you want to make sure that your portfolio uh, is performing the way it should and building wealth over time? Wealthfront has a classic portfolio you can use, or you can restructure it and make your own portfolio with things and policies and uh, products that you care about, socially responsible funds, technology, crypto trust, hundreds of other investments Uh in 2022, check out Wealthfront.com, designed by financial experts to help you turn your good ideas into great investments without the hassle of doing everything yourself, trusted with over $28 billion in assets, helping nearly half a million people build their wealth. Look, if you don't want to spend hundreds of hours trying to lower your tax bill, Wealthfront will help you do that. Not sure how to rebalance your portfolio? Wealthfront does it for you automatically. And the best part is their product is so simple yet powerful. It has a 4.9 rating out of 5 in the Apple App Store. To start building your wealth and get your first $5,000 managed for free for life, go to Wealthfront.com commentary. That's W-E-L W-E-A-L. THFRONT.com slash commentary to start building your wealth. Go to wealthfront.com slash commentary to get started today. So, uh, Ilya Shapiro, conservative legal scholar, uh, moves from I guess George Mason to Georgetown, uh, uh two weeks ago and uh, writes an ill advised or poorly worded tweet in which he says that, uh, he says that Biden should appoint uh, law professor Sri Srinivasan to, to the Supreme court. He's the best liberal in the country. He would be the best judge you could possibly appoint instead of a lesser black woman. The phrase lesser black woman is then seized upon as an evil. Since what he meant was everybody in the country is lesser than Sri Um And now, uh, uh, Ilya Shapiro, um, has been suspended uh, uh, as they investigate the tweet, which according to the Dean of uh, Georgetown law school is very painful. It's caused a lot of, you know, there's a lot of unset and lack of safety. Now, Georgetown law, uh, as a result of this, um, I mean, there is no more open and shut case of a violation of academic freedom than what is going on here. There is no question that if somehow some he is, he is, Removed from his job as a result of the phrasing of a tweet um, that his that that the principle of academic freedom will have been killed at Georgetown Law School. Uh, he was expressing an opinion on the law as a literate, learned person about who should be on the Supreme Court, uh, and uh, offensively worded or not is is immaterial. And of course, we have the case that a lot of people have have been citing of Christine Fair, another law professor at at Georgetown who called for the murder, I believe, of Brett Kavanaugh uh, in 2018. And 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 at Georgetown said she had the right to free speech. Was it well, she
3: she wanted I'm she sorry. wanted the miserable deaths of the entitled white men who supported Kavanaugh. Oh, she wanted them, yes. she, she wanted, wanted them to die. She wanted them to die. She right. wanted them to castrate Castrated. them yeah. and feed them to the pigs. Right. So, right. so, so it was evocative. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Was a, we're, we're literary, there was a of literary flair. Georgetown yeah. defended right. her right to say that.
1: I'll, I'll reject the premise that it was an offensively worded tweet. It is offensively worded if you fail to observe the standards that the internet has imposed in discourse, which is a game that people play where they come up with the least charitable interpretation of someone's remarks, attribute them to the most odious motives imaginable, assign those motives to the person they've imagined in their own minds and demand satisfaction. That's the game that you play on the internet. And if you don't play that game, you can trip on a landline. Ilya did. He stepped on a landline by articulating a premise that all conservatives believe, which is that negative racial discrimination is indistinct from positive racial discrimination. The two things are racial discrimination. They should be avoided because they reflect poorly on the people who are being discriminated against or discriminated for. What have you? It takes away from their qualifications, their credit, their merit. Um, That's. The offense here—that's no offense. This is an entirely jammed up controversy, and one that Georgetown should be ashamed of. Well, and Get he, off the, Twitter. Get well, he off also, Twitter.
3: But he also—he—he he also tried to do the decent thing. He said, "You know what? That was worded badly. I—I I, it obviously offended people. I'm sorry. Let me let me you know." try to smooth things over and apologize, right? So all that did is bring more of the braying mob out Then you have the black students at Georgetown Law claiming they feel unsafe. You have people saying, and then what you do have is the media mob on Twitter saying, well, you know, he never should have been hired there in the first place. And that gave the game away. It's the right. people who are like, well, we don't, we don't want to see him fired. These are the people who started the mob against him, particularly a slate reporter by the name of Mark Stern, then going, oh, actually, I don't want you to fire him. Of course, I never would have hired him in the first place, but like playing this bizarre game where they clearly want this guy's head on a platter but they're too cowardly to actually say that but they'll be very happy if it happens.
2: John is right about get off Twitter because uh, Noah's correct about the game that's played but that tweet made it so easy for them to go to the least charitable interpretation and we're talking about a guy who's written a bunch of brilliant stuff but when you're on Twitter your brain works differently and that is where you would write something that could be so easily misinterpreted. Look, I got off Twitter three years ago. Next month,
0: because I said to myself, "Here's the situation. I can write fifty tweets a day, and you know, which at some points I was. People enjoy them. I get a lot of positive feedback. I got I had one hundred fifty thousand followers. You know, it was very heady." every individual tweet by some point at some point was of no particular accretive value to my reputation or to help commentary promote itself or anything like that so one bad tweet out of thousands in a year ill conceived not thought through whatever could basically destroy my life and and the and the risk reward uh, was too great. It's simply it's simply that aside from everything else, which is that I was kind of addicted to it. And my mind was working in a way that I didn't, I found that I didn't really like whatever. People who have access to other places to express their opinions like Ilya Shapiro should not be on Twitter anymore. It is not safe for you. And by the way, that's true of liberals. It's, it's, it's more true of conservatives than it is of liberals because the mob is looking to deplatform conservatives and particularly academic conservatives and all of that. But I mean, this is a terrible story. What Georgetown is trying to do or may do should not happen. Uh, nobody should go to Georgetown law after this. And, you know, basically you should give, you know, whatever. It's just awful. It's awful in every possible way. And uh, I don't want to blame the victim by saying that, you know, this is partially Ilya Shapiro's fault. But it is partially Ilya Shapiro's fault because the danger of Twitter has been very present and obvious now for years. And people have got to get off Twitter who want to protect themselves and their families and their and their not only their reputations, but their livelihoods. Because it's you, just not worth the you know, the risk but, is not worth the gamble.
3: If you want to say racially offensive things or just generally offensive and bigoted things, you can go on The View. You can become a host on The View because Whoopi Goldberg demonstrates it was kind of a perfect bookend to everything that was happening to Ilya. Then Whoopi Goldberg goes on and basically says, you know, the Holocaust, really, it's just white on white violence. I don't really, you know, I don't really have to deal with it. It's a, it's, a, its about man's inhumanity, man. It wasn't about race at all. She just completely uh, embraced, ironically, the new definition of of racism that the uh, anti League recently uh, put out, which is saying, you know, if you have white skin, you can't be oppressed. If this intersectional idea of race, she did then sort of backpedal. And they booked her immediately on Colbert show last night where she kind of apologized. But it was more like, I'm sorry if I offended you sort of apology. She's just she's she didn't double down as much as she might have. But she still didn't really she doesn't seem to get it. But what she does get is what the sort of liberal intersectional left wants people to think about race which is that everything is literally black and white. And if you are a, a white or white adjacent minority, such as Asian or Jewish, you cannot be anything but an oppressor. And that was a, what she was expressing. That was the subtext of her remark. And it was justifiably uh, uh, horrifying to people that she said that. So that is that is the other side of our culturals, the cultural uh, focus on race right now.
1: It might be too much to assign a lot of intellectual rigor to those remarks, I mean, we might be making a category error by just not attributing the, to a brain fart. However, if there is any, uh, as you say, ideological basis for this, it is rooted in intersectionality, which forces you to think in stereotypes, jingoistic stereotypes, American stereotypes in which Jews are a fully assimilated minority. They have assumed the characteristics of whiteness. So they're both white. There are two white groups, she said on that program. Um, which is not how the Nazis thought about things, for sure. <laughs> but it does demonstrate the extent to which intersectionality is, as we've been saying for very a very long time, a prejudicial philosophy that that mistakes enlightenment for thinking in very in very you know flat terms about how people comport to stereotypes. You have to understand stereotypes in order to break them up, and you end up just internalizing stereotypes. Look, there are
0: two forms of racism. Racism didn't exist until the 19th century. There was no race as a category is a construct of the, of the early to mid 19th century. And it was used in part in the United States in certain ideological quarters to say that because of the racial differences between black and white blacks could therefore be considered inferior, not as, you know, uh, and and unable to uh, in unable to be free uh, because of their uh, manifest inferiority uh, before we really had genetics as a as a thing it was a sort of theory of genetics before there was genetics and as that was going on simultaneously pretty much in Germany and elsewhere in Europe scientific racism arose as a weapon against the Jews. Racism as an idea was a positive, not a negative notion, and it was promulgated, anti-Semitism as a term was a term invented by anti-Semites to explain their hostility and their, and their opposition to Jews holding civil rights in any way, shape, or form in any country on earth, and the claim was that there was something different about Jews that meant that they should not hold these positions. And some of it was idea-based. Some of it was obviously, again, pre-any pre understanding of genetics was a kind of, you know, root idiot genetics. To say that racism, that Jews cannot be victims of racism, is to say one of the most historically illiterate and monstrous things you can possibly say the holocaust was a crime of racism and it was specifically targeted at jews then there were others gypsies were also in, you know the gypsies were also targeted but the the targeting of jews the final solution was the racist crime of history in all of history in all of recorded history it was a crime it was the racist crime of history And here we are, and it's 75 years later, and we're now having arguments in which it is said that Jews cannot be victims of racism when 6 million Jews were killed 75 years ago, not 575 years ago, not 1,075 years ago, but 75 years ago in the living memory. There are films, there are clips. There are people who survived it, who, who, have, who have testified to it. The horrors are unmistakable and unbelievable. It's what happens when you depersonalize and dehumanize people, that an entire nation and a huge workforce of people can contribute to the effort to extirpate a single uh, group of people from the planet Earth. And yet yeah, it matters that Whoopi Goldberg said this. And it matters that Whoopi Goldberg said this and then turned to Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL to, to, clean, to cleanse her of her sin, because as, as um, Christine alluded to, recently the ADL redefined racism in its like FAQs as a form of white privilege against Black people. Not mentioning, this is the Anti-Defamation League, which exists to fight anti-Semitism. And basically, it is now a Black Lives Matter organization not a Jewish defense organization that is what needs to be made clear and Jewish support for the ADL and Jewish uh, you know and the fact that people have now looked every time there's an anti-semitism controversy somebody writes a check to the ADL as a means of cleansing themselves or you know trying to, or if something happens there's a terrible event tree of life, whatever, and then people say, I want to help and give money to the ADL. Don't give money to the ADL. The ADL is now complicit in the ideas that are giving rise to anti-Semitic attacks across the globe. They are complicit. They are not wrongheaded. They are complicit. And with those cheery words, we will say goodbye until tomorrow. So for Abe, Christina,
2: Noah, I'm John Podhoritz, Keep the candle burning.